You are listening to an Eyes on Washington podcast brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. Our Public Policy and Regulation Group is a strong bipartisan team with deep ties throughout Washington, D.C. We have built a thriving government affairs practice through our depth of experience and diversity and by maintaining our bipartisan approach. Our State Attorneys General podcast series is hosted by former Deputy Attorney General of Virginia and Presidential Appointee at the U.S. Department of Commerce, Stephen Cobb. Through conversations with State Attorneys General, this series will dive into the importance and growing role of State Attorneys General while hearing firsthand on what they are working to accomplish in their communities. Welcome to another installment of Holland and Knight's Eyes on Washington podcast, State Attorney's General Edition. My name is Stephen Cobb. I'm a partner in our Washington, D.C. office and former Deputy Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Virginia. I'm very excited to have not one, not two, but three of my colleagues on the podcast today as we talk about the important role that governor's councils plays in both policy formulation and regulatory enforcement across the United States. And so I'm very lucky that I have three colleagues who served as counsel to the governor in their respective states. So we have Chris Rihanna, Jim Schultz, and Robert Highsmith coming from the great states of New York, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and Georgia. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Thanks for having us. So let's get started. Chris, I want to start with you. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, uh, very briefly, your career trajectory, how it got you to the governor's office, um, and some of the kind of overarching roles and responsibilities that you had while serving in the council's office uh, to the governor of New York. And then Jim, Robert, if you can do the same. One of the interesting things here that I think we're going to highlight is that each office is a little bit different. And the issues that you touch on and the powers that you have vary from state to state, which really impacts the private sector's knowledge and ability of when and how to interact with those offices. So, Chris, start us off. No, Steve, I so appreciate that. I think, you know, I had the fortunate opportunity to kind of go backwards from what most people get to do. Um, and as opposed to going from the central uh, executive staff as an assistant counsel to the governor into an agency, I went backwards where I was the general counsel of the New York State Liquor Authority before becoming the assistant counsel for education and constitutional law for the governor of New York. And I think one of the things that is very unique about at least the processes here that we have in New York, and I know that not every state's like this, but at least here, it's a pretty top-down structure. Right under the governor are two statutory offices and only two. There's the secretary to the governor who handles all of the political questions that may come up. And there's counsel to the governor that handles all of the legal questions that come up. And that flows all the way down into every state agency. So each council has a portfolio of general counsels that report to them, which then have a portfolio of of lawyers in each agency that report to them. And it's a very unique structure. But what it really allows for, at least in the New York model, is it's for an incredible opportunity to have an influence, particularly when it comes to the enforcement of regulation. So at the State Liquor Authority, I was in charge of regulating all alcohol in the state of New York. The buck really did stop with me. As assistant counsel to the governor for education, I was in charge of making sure that the laws and regulations of the state managed the $40 billion education budget, almost a third of the state budget of of New York. And that includes writing legislation, that includes editing legislation, that includes writing regulation, approving regulations for all the agencies that report to you. It's an incredible opportunity to really have a, a very big impact 
on the state, especially in a state that has as large of an influence as the state of New York does within both the state level and the locality level, you really do have this this opportunity to have a a massive and and impactful difference in a way that's very, very unique uh, as an attorney. Now, Jim, that sounds slightly similar to what I understand the formatting is in Pennsylvania as well, as the counsel to the governor largely sitting in a general counsel role to departments and agencies. Are there parallels there? There are some parallels, Stephen. In, In Pennsylvania, it's unique. By statute, the general counsel is appointed by the governor and is general counsel not only to the governor, but to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So your title is general counsel to the Commonwealth. And why that's important is because you oversee the legal operation for 37 state and independent agencies. So for instance, even the state system of higher education, which is 14 higher educational institutions in Pennsylvania, you know, is, a, is a separate board. The board is appointed by the legislative bodies and by the governor. The general counsel to the governor oversees the chief counsel's office to the Department of Higher Education. Similarly, with state agencies like Department of Transportation, Department of Environmental Protection, Department of Human Services, those chief counsels are also appointed by the general counsel to the Commonwealth and are sole appointments by the general counsel to the Commonwealth. So essentially, the secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection is counseled by a lawyer that's appointed by the general counsel to the Commonwealth. And that gives tremendous oversight opportunity for and a top-down oversight opportunity for the governor's office. And we're also involved in the regulatory review process at the agency level and then ultimately has to be signed off on by the general counsel. So there's tremendous power and and authority in statute for the general counsel by and through the regulatory review process as well. So other things the general counsel does is review the death penalty cases where the governor has to sign off on death warrants. That's something general counsel performs a review on. Pardons is another one that the general counsel's office provides some review on. There's a lot of issues that come up through uh, many of the independent state agencies. For instance, when I was there, those pension systems were also counseled by the governor's office of general counsel. So they were really the lawyer for the state. And the interplay with the AG's office was a little different. So for instance, if a state agency was sued by an outside entity, at the right of first refusal would go to the AG's office to handle the litigation. But in the instance where the general counsel's office might differ from the AG's office in terms of policy, the general counsel's office could take that case back and handle it themselves or assign it to their own outside counsel to handle. That's, that is very interesting. I mean, in, in Virginia, all of both Chris and Jim, the responsibilities that you talked about and the oversight for those agencies um, is all held within the Virginia Attorney General's office. And so it can create those very interesting dynamics at times with the governor's office, particularly when they are of uh, different parties. But there is no statutory creation of counsel to the governor in Virginia. It is at the pleasure of the governor, so much like they, they might have a deputy chief of staff or a senior advisor but the role is sometimes they make it cabinet level through an executive order and other times they don't. But it, So it can really vary administration to administration. Robert, talk to me a little bit about the council to the governor in Georgia. Where does that fall kind of in, in the scheme of things with New York and Pennsylvania on one end of the spectrum and, and Virginia on the other? Where does Georgia fall? Thanks, Stephen. It's really more uh, closer to, to the Virginia model in Georgia. There is a statute 
that specifically authorizes the governor to hire executive counsel. The statute's been on the books uh, for decades, and governors for decades have employed between two and five lawyers uh, in their in their offices to report directly to them and advise them on the whole gamut of executive branch uh, legal matters. When I was in Governor Sonny Perdue's uh, office, there were two of us, uh, Harold Melton and me. Harold would go on to become chief justice of our Supreme Court here in Georgia, a role from which he only recently stepped down to rejoin private practice. We, we don't have the formal level of oversight that Jim was describing, but it's very much an informal uh, level. That is to say, most of the agency heads in Georgia are appointed and serve at the pleasure of the governor. A few of them have terms or and, and most of them have some sort of board uh, that that ratifies their appointment. But but practically speaking, the governor hires and fires executive agency heads. Uh, and governor's council or the executive council to the governor will frequently be the ones that uh, lawyers embedded in those agencies will call and say, we've got this issue. What would the governor like us to do? So even though it's not a formal supervisory or oversight role uh, embedded in statute, it nonetheless uh, is one where uh, you're the lawyer in state government that all these agencies are, are calling to determine you know, how they should should handle a particular problem. We differ from Virginia and most states in that in Georgia, the governor has absolutely no powers of executive clemency. All of the executive clemency powers are reserved to a constitutionally established board of pardons and paroles. And so uh, I remember on the first day in office, the governor's green new chief of staff wanted to know where the red phone was that, you know, that w- where the calls would come in from the, the prison in Jackson. And we just we, we didn't have that at all, which frankly suited me fine. I'm sure that wasn't an awkward conversation at all, though. <laughs> Thinking he, he might have been looking forward to it. I certainly wasn't. But that was so, so again, no executive clemency, no executive clemency powers. And then you have the attorney general in Georgia. The attorney general is an elected uh, position. And the attorney general provides uh, by constitution and statute provides representation to the agency so that if there's litigation or or advice that the agencies seek from the attorney general, uh, then the attorney general and the state law department provides that advice. Uh, And that can create friction. I mean, in the first year of divided government, when I served as executive counsel, uh, as an executive counsel in Sonny Perdue's office, uh, we sued the attorney general 17 days into the administration because there was a tug of war over who got to set the direction in some litigation the state was involved in concerning redistricting. And the, the Democratic elected attorney general wanted to pursue it. The governor wanted him to drop it. The attorney general refused. And so off we went. That case, we ended up losing that case. That case ended up setting some of the uh, some of the parameters around what legal powers the governor has to direct the legal affairs of the state and what powers the attorney general has. I would I would say, though, Stephen, that even then, even when we were fighting hammer and tongs over something as politically volatile as redistricting, the attorney general's office and the governor's office work together hand in glove and get along no matter who's where they come from, what party they come from on, I would say, 90 to 95 percent of the issues. Uh, it's a very professional uh, you know, working relationship, you know, almost because it has to be. But uh, occasionally the big uh, and we and since 2006. We've had governors and attorneys general of the same party, and that has that has limited the amount of friction between those offices in Georgia. Building on that, I had the same experience. So in addition to just litigation issues, every contract, every procurement that comes through the Commonwealth has to go through what's called a form and legality review process in Pennsylvania, which involves a sign off by the agency council, a sign off 
by the Office of General Counsel of the Commonwealth, but also a sign off by the Office of Attorney General. So you, whether it's litigation or contract review, there's always this interplay and back and forth between the Office of Attorney General and the Office of the General Counsel of the Commonwealth. That's an excellent point. And it also leads to a good segue. I, mean, I know you all are regular monthly listeners to this podcast, so this will come as no, no surprise at all. But one of the things that I have talked about with all of our guests over the last uh, year or so is kind of my underlying thesis, which is that states at this point really are the driving force um, for both policy and regulatory enforcement across the country. I know I talk about the tens, um, if not hundreds of billions of dollars over the last 20 years that state AGs have collected in the form of fine settlements and uh, judgments, but also as a matter of, to borrow the Clinton-esque uh, adjective, the laboratories of democracy that are the states for when it comes to pushing forward uh, what is the new public policy agenda across the country. So, Comment a little bit, if you can, about, you know, kind of where you see states as driving forces in comparison to their federal counterparts on the policy and regulatory enforcement space. Chris, let's start with you. Sure. I mean, in so many ways, there's no question in my mind that as important as the federal regulatory space is and federal enforcement is, and, and it most certainly is very, very important, you know, the state, at least especially in the state of New York, the state AG, state agencies, and especially throughout the state budget process, there's no doubt in my mind at all that there's an incredible amount of power vested in, in the various different bodies that, that exist within the state, both to create regulation and to enforce regulation that can be inside an agency, that can be internal to an agency when a, when a particular agency is created to be a regulatory body. And that can be with, with the state AG's office. And we have a famously uh, engaged attorney general's office. Um, in fact, in New York, we always call, and we have, we have a moniker for the AG, we call them the aspiring governor, because <laughs> we have such an engaged attorney general's office. And you know, to, to one of the points that was brought up earlier, you know, it's interesting because sometimes there can be a little bit of tension. That, that does come up. You have independently elected officials. Here we have four, the governor, the lieutenant governor, the attorney general, and the comptroller. And there can be the tension between those independent statewide offices. Um, I know uh, the vast majority of state agencies use the AG's office for litigation. And I was fortunate or maybe just had a very unique experience in that we did not use the AG's office for litigation. We self-litigated at the State Liquor Authority, which made for a really interesting experience being the chief lawyer at that agency, especially since we did not hire outside counsel. We just litigated ourselves. And so I think in so many ways, it's why it becomes really important to understand the state itself. Because, Stephen, to your point, states are that laboratory and states do have an incredible amount of authority, dominion and control, particularly since so much money, so, so much money, whether it's health money, education money or other forms of money flows through states, even when it comes from the federal government flows through states to localities, and therefore states have an incredible amount of authority over how that might get spent, and then the ability to investigate when there's problems that come up in those various different areas. Robert, give me your two cents here, because I know, I mean, in particular, I know Georgia really considers itself uh, a driver here in best practices, and you know, I've heard AG Carr talk about the environment that they're trying to build in Georgia as a driving force for economic growth. But whether that's economic growth or like what Chris was talking about, regulatory in enforcement, you know, states seem to be tip of the spear. What are your thoughts? 
Sure, Stephen. I mean, in, in Georgia, the attorney general's office, again, uh, as we've discussed, you know, hand, handles most, very nearly all of the litigation that the state's involved in. And they, whenever there's a major settlement with an industry uh, on, uh, you know, whether it's tobacco with the master settlement agreement or the opioid settlements that are, that are coming down now, the attorney general's office uh, oversees those, uh, but but honestly has to share a lot of the duties with the governor's office and legislature in terms of how those funds will be uh, will be spent. Frequently, there's accompanying legislation when there's a major settlement, so the attorney general doesn't have just plenary authority on how those funds how those funds are spent. The 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 major policy uh, decisions and policy direction, though, is really set by the governor's office. I mean, those are, you know, they'll consult with the attorney general, you know, where there are legal issues, but all of the legislative review and the, uh, the you know, it's it's rare for the attorney general to have a major influence uh, in, uh, you know, in, in significant legislation. They'll be consulted, you know, here and there. Uh, but it's really the governor's office that drives those processes. Now, one thing that has moved away from the governor's office in recent years and into the attorney general's office is consumer protection. For decades, we had the governor's office of consumer protection that had that had lawyers uh, in the office and a director that reported directly to the governor. And they're the ones that went around, uh, you know, engaging in consumer protection litigation, et cetera. That has recently been moved under the attorney general uh, the way it is in many other states. And the attorney general's office now has uh, primary enforcement uh, and litigation authority for consumer protection matters. And, you know, states have been, you know, as we all know, working in this space, states have been pretty active, uh, active in that regard. But in terms of the major policy initiatives, our, our attorney general, uh, who you mentioned, Stephen Chris Carr, is going to work hand in glove with his uh, ticket mate and party mate. They came into office uh, at, at the same time, almost, and they're, they're going to work very closely on policy issues. But it's really the governor's office that drives it. So, Jim, looking into your crystal ball here, you, whether it's governor's offices AG offices, you know, what do you see as the hot policy slash legal issues that are going to be dominant over the next, whether that's six months, 18 months, where, where do you see the, those, those driving issues percolating up from the state level? So I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the you know, Pennsylvania on this, on this topic, because Pennsylvania is kind of ground zero for natural gas and Marcella shale. And you have this constant, you know, push and pull over pipelines. You have a constant push and pull on how to, you know, get through zoning to get the pipelines across the state to move the oil and gas. You have philosophical differences between the last administration in the state and this this current administration who's on his way out, and then a sitting attorney general who's now running for for governor. And you know, there has to be this balance, and the the governor's office and the Department of Environmental Section really sets the policies that, as it relates to environmental issues and energy, if you will, and then the Office of Attorney General really only gets involved in civil enforcement and criminal enforcement should folks cross the line. And we've seen, you know, General Shapiro bringing cases against energy transfer in a criminal capacity uh, recently. And we've also seen, you know, prior attorney generals take on other other entities in the same way. And, you know, sometimes they're at odds with the department in terms of the the, the uh, governor's administration. Even if they're on the same side of the aisle, they might not necessarily agree as to what's appropriate and what's not and what's, what's in the best interest of the Commonwealth and what's not. And that's just an interesting push and pull to see. And very important that the legislature, you know, also step in and has its role 
as it relates to regulating these these industries as well, because you have the balance that you're striking between, you know, the need for energy independence and then the need to make sure you're protecting the environment. And in Pennsylvania, we actually have an environmental rights amendment. That's an excellent point. And it also includes that kind of dichotomy, which is when are you working, particularly in states like New York and Pennsylvania? And when are you working with agency counsel that goes to regulatory compliance? And when are you working with an AG's office, which is civil enforcement? And sometimes those lines can be really blurred. But in order for companies to really be able to have effective and productive business models, kind of understanding that that push and pull between the two, I think, can be a really important factor in the success of their business and ensuring their regulatory compliance moving forward. Robert, and I think, you know, Georgia having that interesting change that you mentioned of moving consumer from kind of one side of the divide to the other provides an uh, interesting foil for that. But what are some of the areas, you know, pivoting here just a little bit as we talk about how do we work within the regulatory paradigm that varies from state to state? When are you working with the governor's counsel's office? When are you working with a a general counsel to a uh, agency? When are you working with uh, an AG's office? When do you reach out? What are some best practices, tips and tricks that you've noticed over the year that has really helped private sector engage in a productive manner as part of that regulatory overlay in order to make sure that they are able to continue to grow and do their business, but at the same time remain compliant? Sure. You just have to know who in these various pockets of of lawyering is in charge of what issue. For example, it's very helpful to know if you're dealing with a utility regulatory issue that the AG's office actually is heavily involved in that because there's a longtime senior assistant attorney general uh, who not only advises the Public Service Commission, but also litigates before and on behalf of the commission. And it's been the same guy for 20 years, Dan Walsh. Uh, and, and, you know, you're going to talk to him as you're dealing with utility regulation. If it's a consumer protection issue, uh, the the longtime head of that office, both when it was under the governor and now that it's under the attorney general's office and in finger uh, is a longtime lawyer there who you're going to want to talk to. If it's a legislative issue, you would want to start with David Dove, who's the executive counsel to Governor Kemp and has held that role since Governor Kemp took office. And, and he one function, by the way, that I should have mentioned is that all of the legislative uh, review before the governor signs anything flows through that office, the Office of Executive Counsel. They're the ones that they review all the legislation, the several hundred bills that the Georgia General Assembly will pass in any given session and advise the governor on which ones to sign and which ones to veto. Uh, they also vet and frequently draft the governor's legislative package. So if you have uh, an issue that you hope to have the governor champion, uh, through the legislative process, that's uh, that's going to be the governor's uh, the governor's counsel. In the agencies, though, if you're dealing with a procurement issue, you have the Department of Administrative Services that has uh, and its general counsel. By the way, was a longtime general counsel was just promoted to commissioner. She's now running the agency. She actually uh, Rebecca Sullivan is her name. She succeeded me as exa- in the role of of executive counsel to Governor Purdue. And that office is going to handle the the mechanics of procurement. But in a pre-procurement, you know, when the RFP is being thought about or, or considered, you know, the agency council is going to have a heavy role uh, in designing that RFP and pushing out the end user uh, specifications that the that the DOAS will then release. So, you know, each of these, you know, it's, it's different in each state, as we know. And it, it, in Georgia in particular, it's 
it's important to know, you know, which of these, uh, you know, little mini law firms that that serve uh, state government, you know, what's in each of their wheelhouses. So you know who to call. And it's a and it, it, it can be agency counsel. It can be the governor's counsel. Uh, it, it can be the attorney general's office. Uh, and and it, it's going to vary, you know, with with issue and with agency, according to what it is you're trying to achieve uh, for your client. And Chris, I imagine you come across that a lot, not just from the work that you did inside government in New York, but as part of that national regulatory practice as well. Absolutely, Stephen. And I think something that was just mentioned that's really important is legislation and the incredible role that frequently both agency counsel, but especially governor's councils have in legislation and whether that's negotiating the legislation ahead of time to make sure that it's something that will be signed. Or in New York, we have a very unique structure where we actually can negotiate amendments to legislation after it's been passed. And, and that can actually become part of the negotiated package called a chapter amendment. Um, and that's all the councils. That's a huge part of your portfolio is deciding what gets signed, what gets vetoed, making those recommendations, making amendments to see if you can get the veto rate down and get more things signed by amending legislation that's already been passed. And that's just on the normal legislative cycle. The budget itself is written in tandem with the budget uh, division by council's office because there's so many different policy initiatives that end up being put in the budget because of the of the way that the state uh, constitution works in New York. But that's actually not too rare that that's where a lot of that resides. And that is a humongous role because legislation, of course, drives policy. And it's a small number of people in every single state that have that opportunity to make those, not just recommendations, but often decisions on legislation that can have a massive impact on industry. That's that's an excellent point. Gentlemen, as, as you can see, I could probably talk about state regulatory do's and don'ts and ins and outs for hours and hours. But unfortunately, we, we, we do only have a limited amount of time. So first, Chris, Robert, Jim, thank you for your service as counsel in your respective states of New York, Georgia, um, and Pennsylvania. And we're lucky to have you as, as part of our team here at Holland Night. So before we sign off, is there any other uh, final parting thoughts or bits of wisdom that you'd like to add? I'd like to give each of you uh, j- just a moment or two if you have any parting comments. I think Robert summed it up very well. It doesn't matter if you're talking about a government procurement, government tax incentive, government grant, legislative priority or regulatory priority. All of those issues are centrally located in the governor's office and more particularly in the governor's offices of council. And they have a unique ability to impact those issues. And it's very important that you also have a good relationship and understand the inner workings between the governor's council and the AG's office in order to accomplish those goals. So I appreciate all of our listeners out there. Uh, hearing us out. And if you have those kinds of issues, please give us a call. I can't improve on that, Jim. Yeah, Jim, that was so well said. I think you're exactly right. And and I think it's one of those interesting parts of having had a chance to serve in government that we've all had a chance to see that uh, at that level. On that note, thanks again, gentlemen, for joining the podcast. This has been Holland and Knight's Eyes on Washington podcast, State Attorneys General Edition, um, as we talked about the role of Governor's Council. I hope you all will tune in to the next installment. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to an Eyes on Washington podcast brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. For more information on our Public Policy and Regulation Group, please visit hklaw.com slash PPR.